0: cedar rapids gazette for today monday january 30 on iris i'm your reader ken louder first let's take a look at the weather for eastern iowa today we're expecting a partly cloudy day with winds from the northwest at 10 to 20 miles per hour cedar rapids will climb to a high of only five degrees and iowa city will see nine degrees falling to a, t- a low tonight of nine below in cedar rapids and three below in Iowa City. Sunset tonight is at 5.19 p.m., sunrise tomorrow morning at 7.20 a.m. for a total daylight period of 9 hours and 58 minutes. And from the front page of today's Gazette, Cedar Rapids black students share stories to create change, a story by Grace King of the Gazette staff. Kennedy High School senior Jasmine Hyde is learning to love the person she is, and even how to properly care for her hair and skin as a black girl, lessons she partially attributes her to her peers in the black student union. Height, age 18, joined the student union, an advocacy group for students of color this year. She occasionally had felt excluded and alone, and was looking for community. On Friday, She shared her experience during the Black Student Union's Voices of the Voiceless event, an open mic night in the high school's auditorium, as someone who is adopted and the only person of color in her family. Straightened or relaxed hair was the only way I felt beautiful, but I don't have to have relaxed hair to be beautiful, said Height, adding that her mom tried her best and braided her hair when she was growing up. She's learning more about racial discrimination, saying that she knows now to keep her hands visible at all times if pulled over by a police officer. It's a matter of life and death, Haidt said. Haidt was one of more than a dozen high school students who spoke about their experiences being black in a predominantly white school system, learning to accept themselves and working to make positive change in their community, city, state, and beyond. This is the second Voices of the Voiceless hosted by the Kennedy High Black Student Union. Last year, the students used the platform to educate their peers on why the use of racial slurs, which they said were commonly heard in the school's hallways, is inappropriate. Cora Collins, age 15, a sophomore at Kennedy High, said the black student union is helping her find a place in a school system where many of the students have never had a black teacher, she said. Cora said she feels like I have a lot of power when I read something I wrote. I think what I have to say can make a difference. So there's so much power in writing something and knowing your friends will listen to what you have to say. Jenny Schultz, a lawyer, and executive director of Kids First Law Center was also invited by students to speak Friday. Kids First Law Center provides legal representation and services for kids and restorative justice coordinators to schools in the Cedar Rapids Community School District. Scholes commended the Black Student Union for using student voices to create change. In 2020, Students in the Black Student Union at Kennedy High asked the school board to remove school resource officers from district schools and for classes to include more black history, literature, and art. Since then, the Cedar Rapids School Board has examined the program and set goals with the police department to reduce arrests and charges filed against all students by 50% or more, and bringing a 50% or greater reduction in the disproportionate number of arrests of black students. Last fall, a new contract between the district and police department removed full-time officers from Cedar Rapids Middle Schools. Here, you, you all who might think you're powerless made this incredible change in the school district, Schultz said. You met with police and school officials, and came to these really boring school board meetings, you showed up, you stood up, and you spoke up. It was your voices at these podiums that made the difference, Schultz said. It made everybody pay attention, and it woke up people like me and made us say, why are we arresting kids at school when we send them there to learn? Rachel Collins, co-sponsor of the Black Student Union and school counselor at Kennedy High, said she is in awe of how these students advocate for themselves and others, ask the tough questions, and demand answers. She also wishes the Black Student Union could be a place where students can be comfortable and know their worth instead of always feeling like they have to take action. They've been marginalized for so long and feel like they have to keep pushing for change, Collins said. Earlier this year, the students were brainstorming ways to celebrate Black History Month in February and felt they have to produce something for the whole school because no one else will, Collins said. What can you do that's not as much work for you and can celebrate you, Collins asked the students. Now the students are hosting a door decorating contest for staff, encouraging teachers in the school to decorate their door with a Black History Month theme. One question decorators might ask for inspiration is how have black Americans moved the subject, such as history, science, math, or language arts, forward, Collins said. They are, thro- they are throwing a black gala, similar to a prom, and a trivia night oriented around black history. Those were things that brought them joy, Collins said. They do all the work. They deserve all the attention. Also from today's front page, Marion looking to solve uptown parking challenges, a story by Gage Miskimon of the Gazette staff. As multiple city transforming projects have come together in uptown Marion over the past few years, the heart of the city is busier during the nights and weekends than it has been in recent memory. The heightened activity is a sign of successful revitalization efforts, and more than a decade of planning to build Marion's center. The city and its partners now are turning their attention to parking, as there is more demand than before. There is no vibrant, active commercial area that doesn't have parking challenges, Marion Mayor Nick Abu Aseli said. To me, it's a sign that Uptown Marion is, is successful. I would be worried, if we had plenty of parking. Having said that, we do have to look at how to provide more options for parking and make it a more pleasant experience for people coming to Uptown Marion. The City will pursue a parking study with a consultant, most likely in the next fiscal year, while at the same time working with the Chamber and businesses on a Partners in Parking program. The program provides more parking in businesses' parking lots during their non-business hours in the uptown area. Main Street Director Brooke Prouty has been working with businesses like Hills Bank and Friday to establish the program. A lot of of the private lots know people are parking there during no-business hours, so it's their opportunity to formalize that, Prouty said. We will put up signs with information that has hours allowed allowed to park on it. We're hoping to roll that program out this summer, and if it's successful, we could expand to other parts of Marion where parking is limited. Proudy said that she calls the parking challenges in Uptown Marion where parking is free a perception problem. This also requires people to keep it in perspective because we all go to big-box stores and park, and are willing to walk the equivalent of several blocks in Uptown Marion. We can't expect to park right in front of the businesses we're visiting. That's impossible for everyone to have. Most of us will have to expect to walk a block or two. City Manager Ryan Waller said the City and the Chamber of Commerce are taking inventory of the hundreds of parking spots available in the Uptown area, and trying to do a better job of marketing that to residents and visitors. After hours, the city hall and library parking lots are open for anybody who wants to park and walk to Uptown, Waller said. I have meetings up there all the time. It's a quick walk. It's a little dusty right now with broad and main construction and the upcoming plaza project, but the walk is easy. And it's going to become an even more beautiful walk. Prouty said most of the feedback she hears about parking comes from business owners who hear it from their customers. Currently Uptown Marion has about 625 parking spaces which includes City Hall and both, both library lots which are available for public parking after hours. We are arming the businesses with the opportunity to show patrons that there is more parking than it seems, Prouty said, "People aren't driving around the block and not finding anything going back home. We don't have people calling saying they can't find parking at all. It just sometimes, it's just sometimes difficult to find the parking." Kelsey Hoth, the owner of Friday in Uptown Marion, said she as well believes the parking issue is a perception issue. She's one of the businesses participating in Partners in Parking, and she owns the lot on the corner of 8th Avenue and 10th Street. It's like the Ped mall in Iowa City. You're never going to go anywhere and have that feel and be able to park right outside the business you want to go to, Hoth said. People will have to get used to the changes with a busy historic downtown. I 100% think it's a perception thing. There's a lot of parking already in a very small area. The city also will install two new wayfinding signage signage that includes distances to destinations. For people, a sign could say City Square Park 5-Minute Walk. That way, so that helps change the perspective on parking as well, Prouty said. Waller said the goal is to also incorporate the parking study into the upcoming budget. The city has been talking with consultants. Staff would try to be set and ready to go as we head into the real busy summer season. That's when we want a consultant to really look at Uptown with all of the activities, Waller said. That will help us identify strategies that we're not currently doing, while also looking at long-term strategies that we can continue to work toward. We can't expect to park right in front of the businesses we're visiting. That's impossible for everyone to have. Also from today's front page, Reynolds pitches sprawling health bill, focuses on rural health care and supports for new parents. A story by Caleb McCullough of the Gazette-Lee Des Moines Bureau. Governor Kim Reynolds has proposed a sprawling bill dedicated to health care that includes a focus on strengthening rural health care and providing care to expecting and new parents. Among the nearly dozen divisions of the proposed House Study Bill 91 are provisions creating an OBGYN fellowship program allowing pharmacists to dispense birth control without a prescription, putting funded funding toward rural health care systems And apprenticeships and giving paid parental leave to state employees. Reynolds, a Republican, announced the contours of the plan in her January 10 condition of the state address, saying it would bolster Iowa's health care system. To support our families, we need a strong health care system in every part of the state, Reynolds said in her speech. While our health care system is in the top ten nationally, we still face challenges, especially in rural Iowa. Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley of New Hartford said House Republicans have interest in providing maternal care and other aspects of the bill, but he hasn't determined the party's support on every provision in the proposal. There is some interest to make sure we provide support when it comes to maternal health and other things, Grassley told reporters. Thursday. I have not had the time to sit down and meet with my members. Democrats, too, said late last week that they had not had time to look over the specifics of Reynolds' bill. If there's a health care bill that's going through the legislature, it's important that everyone knows that Democrats had absolutely nothing to do with writing it or any part of the process, said House Minority Leader Jennifer Conforst. of of Windsor Heights. And so we don't know what's in the bill because we weren't asked to participate. I imagine there are some things in the bill that we would do differently. So we're going to pay close attention to that. The bill would create a fellowship program for family medicine obstetricians to work for a year at a teaching hospital and then work at least five years in a rural or underserved area of the state. The state would pay the fellows' salaries, and the bill calls for funding four fellowships in the first year. There's a real shortage of OBGYNs in rural Iowa. You can definitely see that, said Dane Schumann, a lobbyist for the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which is registered in support of the bill. This is one good step towards helping reverse that trend and providing more care to more Iowans in areas that don't have it. The lack of OBGYNs means that rural Iowans have to travel sometimes up to hundreds of miles to get prenatal care, Schumann said. With a five-year requirement that doctors remain in the state, Schumann said the hope is that fellows will settle in the state. If a physician decides to set down roots in a rural area, and start to practice for a beginning period of time in their career, then they will start to practice there longer, and they develop a bond and a relationship with the people out there that they're providing care for, he said. The bill would expand Reynolds' More Options for Maternal Support program passed last year to include initiatives that support men involved in a pregnancy. Referred to as the MOMS program, it provides funding and resources designed to encourage childbirth and discourage abortion. The funding provided by the law Republicans passed last year goes to facilities that promote healthy pregnancies and childbirth instead of abortion. These facilities have been criticized by abortion rights advocates as misleading and not fully licensed medical facilities. According to the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, they often use false and misleading information, emotional manip- manipulation, and delays to divert pregnant people from accessing comprehensive and timely care. Reynolds has asked the state Supreme Court to reinstate a 2018 law that would have banned abortion when cardiac activity is detected in a fetus, usually around sixth week of pregnancy. Democrats opposed the Moms' Bill last year, in part because the money went to crisis pregnancy centers. This year's bill would bump up funding for the Moms' program to $2 million. Adding fatherhood initiatives to the program, the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services would provide grants that help fathers find employment, manage child support, transition after incarceration, and enhance parenting skills. Studies show that without a father present, a child is more likely to have behavioral issues, to live in poverty, and die in infancy, Reynolds said during her speech. With him, those indicators and others are reversed. Mothers are more likely to receive prenatal care, have a healthy birth, and experience less stress as a parent. One program that could receive state funding under the change is the YMCA of Greater Des Moines' Fatherhood Program. The program helps absent fathers reconnect with their children and become a healthy presence in their lives, YMCA of Greater Des Moines Chief Executive Officer Lisha DeSmet said in a statement. We know that when fathers play an active role in their children's lives, everyone benefits. Family economics improve. Kids do better in school. Mothers feel supported. And fathers are motivated to to be positive role models for their children, she said. Reynolds is taking another swing at a proposal she introduced in 2019, allowing pharmacists to dispense birth control without a prescription. The prescription would allow Iowans over 18 to skip a doctor visit to be given birth control pills, vaginal rings, or contraceptive patches. Pharmacists would administer a screening to a patient who requests birth control, and patients would need to follow up with a physician within 27 months of being provided the birth control method. The bill passed the Senate in 2019, but did not advance. Grassley said he didn't know if the proposal if the proposal would have support of House Republicans this year. In the past, we've had mixed reviews within the caucus. But with that many new members, we really have not had that conversation to be able to gauge what the entire opinion would be from all the members, he, he said. Senate President Amy Sinclair, a Republican from Allerton, said on Iowa Press, on Iowa PBS, That she's supportive of the idea. It has been a priority of some of my colleagues in the Senate and I think it will continue to be, she said. It's all part of that overarching view of women's health care that we've really been trying to focus on. Reynolds' bill also includes two provisions already making their way through the legislature under separate bills, creating a license system for rural emergency hospitals and capping non-economic damages from medical malpractice lawsuits at $1 million. Grassley said the House is likely to continue moving those provisions under separate bills and choose which provisions from Reynolds' bill they want to move forward. Reynolds made capping non-economic damages a priority at the beginning of the session as well. She said during her condition of the state address, that high lawsuit verdicts are driving medical school students and graduates away from Iowa. Opponents argue that proposal puts an arbitrary limit on legal awards when someone suffers long-term disabilities or quality-of-life damage from a medical procedure. In cases where things go catastrophically wrong, there has to be the ability of a jury of our peers to determine what the appropriate consequences of that decision are, Iowa Senate Democratic Leader Zach Walls of Coralville said on Thursday. Other initiatives included in Reynolds' bill are providing parental leave for state employees, requiring review and approval for group accident or health insurance policies, a $1 million grant for regional, uh, excuse me, one million dollars in grants for regional health centers, providing subsidies for adoption expenses, lowering property taxes for commercial child care centers, and providing flexibility for foster care students who receive an All-Iowa Opportunity Scholarship. Turning to today's opinion page, we have a guest column by Kathleen Parker, who is a Washington Post columnist. Her um, piece is entitled Not Happy, Try Lumberjacking. It may surprise few that lawyers are the unhappiest people on the planet, at least when it comes to their jobs. This is according to lawyers themselves and is the conclusion of a recent analysis by the Washington Post of data on America's happiest and unhappiest workers. Chalk up lawyers' malaise to high levels of stress and a lack of meaningfulness in their work. This doesn't mean all lawyers dislike their jobs, but data don't lie, even if some lawyers sometimes do. I should mention that a significant number of my family members have been and are attorneys. This analysis was done by Andrew Van Dam, who, speaking of meaningful employment, delves into vast data banks to answer questions posed by readers. In this case, He examined thousands of journals from the Bureau of Labor Statistics' American Time Use Survey to find out who's happy and who isn't. Beneath all this data is perhaps one more important question. What is happiness? As a teenager, I once asked my lawyer father if he was happy. Pursing his lips, he thought for a moment, then said, For some people, happiness is the absence of stress. I assumed he was referring to himself. He also said in another conversation that he thrived on stress, from which I concluded that life is often contradictory. His answer, nonetheless, was consistent with the survey findings. The less stress, the greater the happiness. So who are the happy devils who love their jobs? Envelope, please. And the winners are lumberjacks, foresters, and farmers. The common denominator among the three is obvious. They all work primarily outdoors, soloists, communing with nature far removed from the white-collar stresses of desk life and paperwork. Farmers live intimately with the earth, tilling and smelling the soil, planting, tending, and harvesting crops, and ending each day with the satisfaction of having accomplished something meaningful. They feed the world. Likewise, Foresters oversee wooded land with an eye toward conservation. They work to simultaneously sustain ecosystems and mitigate climate change. A single 30-foot tree can store hundreds of pounds of carbon dioxide during its lifetime and even thereafter when used for housing or furniture, according to the Agriculture Department. Lumberjacks, the ultimate tree huggers, harvest trees for housing, furniture, and other consumer products. They're also partially responsible for reforestation. It must be said, but they too enjoy their work and apparently suffer little stress. What doesn't show up in the analysis are any metaphysical reasons such workers are happy. I would submit that it's because they spend their time close to nature. In my experience, living attuned to Earth's cycles and seasons I don't mean shopping for outerwear online, has a salubrious effect on body, mind, and soul. Thus, Tibetan monks build monasteries on remote mountaintops. Henry David Thoreau lived alone for two years in a tiny shack he built overlooking Walden Pond. And many people find a renewed sense of self and purpose through wilderness programs, such as Outward Bound, and the National Outdoor Leadership School. Nature works wonders. City dwellers might say that they experience nature in urban ways, by spending a day in a park, perhaps, or on vacation. They get to observe the ebbs and flows of oceans, rivers, and lakes. To see wildlife, they can go to a zoo. But such bystander adaptions sidestep the essential point. It's one thing to observe the natural world, It's quite another to be a part of it. Most people apparently are fine with observing. Today, 83% of Americans live in urban areas. Globally, 56% of the world's population, or 4.4 billion people, live in cities, according to the World Bank. By 2050, 7 in 10 humans will trade nature's hum for the city's arias. The reasons for this migratory trend are obvious and sensible jobs, entertainment, restaurants, theater, shopping, and all the other wondrous things only cities can provide. But the downsides aren't inconsequential. Crowds, traffic, noise, pollution, and loss of physical space are assaults on the senses. Human beings are animals too. We sometimes forget, and this is when we get into trouble. No wonder so many children and adults are being medicated for anxiety on a more mundane level the draw of the city exacerbates the urban rural divide and surely promises even greater political polarization the issues that concern city dwellers and country folk are as different from each other as lumbers and lum- lawyers and lumberjacks given that one of those groups is happier than the other i can't help wondering what the exodus from rural habitats to urban mazes Portends for our humanity. I do know that when I'm alone in the woods where I currently live, keeping an eye on the hawks and an ear to the breeze, I am calm and untroubled. Oh, sure, I enjoy city life like everyone, and make frequent forays from which, stressed by traffic and too many people, I happily retreat to the woods. As soon as this column is done, I'm going to chop some firewood plant some trees and potatoes, and probably evolve into a higher life form. See you on the mountaintop. That piece by Kathleen Parker. And we have two letters to the editor today. The first comes from Linda Schreiber of Iowa City. Her piece is entitled Legislative Assurances Are Not Enough for Taxpayers. Althea Cole's column in in the Sunday Gazette questioned the reasoning behind exempting private schools from receiving public funding. In her argument, she cautions Iowans to be careful what they wish for when it comes to restricting public funds to private institutions, citing other programs offered by the private sector using taxpayer funds including health care, SNAP, housing vouchers, and student financial aid. However, the programs she names provide services to assist low income disadvantaged people to achieve a better life that the public sector does not offer. Programs that are funded by the public and administered in the private sector must be managed carefully to provide services, avoid harm to those in need, and prevent waste. Accountability is critical to success. Iowans remember the debacle experienced with Medicaid privatization in Iowa. Although improved, it's far from perfect. Ask recipients. In a 2012 property tax reform plan, the Iowa legislature guaranteed municipalities to offset the loss experienced when commercial property taxes were overhauled. The legislature's promise to backfill municipalities' tax loss was abruptly halted years before the expected date, forcing cities to increase taxes. Taxpayers have no reason to believe assurances the legislature makes. Lost trust is hard to regain. Legislation titled Students' First Act or Private School Vouchers is another issue that could quickly go awry. The new law does not include transparency or accountability standards for oversight. That by Linda Schreiber of Iowa City. And the next letter Uh, comes from Michael Daly of Lisbon. It's entitled Limited Environmental Impact Doesn't Justify Pipelines. The Wolf Carbon Pipeline from Cedar Rapids to Decatur, Illinois, a 280-mile length, is designed to transport 6 million metric tons of CO2 annually and will make a $510 million dollar in in annual marketable U.S. tax credits for that effort. During the Public Iowa Utilities Board Wolf informational meetings in December, Wolf Executive Nick Knoppinger stated that Wolf has no interest in building the pipeline without the U.S. government's 45-quarter tax credits. The Wolf pipeline will be funded at the expense of the U.S. taxpayers and paid out to a Canadian pension plan investment organization. The pipeline's insignificant environmental, act, environmental impact breakdown is 6 million uh, total U.S. CO2 auto tailpipe, CO2 emissions, uh, or 0.5581%. The proposed Wolf pipeline is designed to capture to capture approximately one-half of 1% of the total U.S. auto tailpipe CO2 emissions. The Iowa section of the pipeline, which is 90 miles in length that goes through my neighborhood, is approximately one-third that amount, or 0.169%. The new Inflation Reduction Act requires only 75% efficiency, totaling only 0.126%. You could safely say that just one-tenth of one percent of the U.S. auto tailpipe CO2 emissions will be transported over the 90 miles of the Iowa section of the Wolf Pipeline annually. The outrageous and misappropriated $510 million annual payout amount, the permanent disruption to the lives and safety of rural Iowans, and the maleficent Destruction of Iowa land for this insignificant fraction of CO2 capture are morally unjustifiable. A letter by Michael Daly of Lisbon. And you're listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Monday, January 30, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. First from Cedar Rapids, Dick Healy, age 75, passed away Wednesday, January 25, at his home. A celebration of life will be held at 1.30 p.m. Tuesday, January 31, at murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids, with visitation to begin at noon at the funeral home. A live stream of the service may be accessed on the Funeral Home website tribute page for Dick under Photos and Videos, starting at 1.30 p.m. Tuesday, January 31. Also from Cedar Rapids, Marlis Marie Floyd, age 86, died Friday, January 27 at the home of her daughter. Services are at 10:30 a.m. Wednesday at St. Patrick Catholic Church. Burial is in St. Joseph Cemetery. Friends may visit with the family after 9:30 a.m. Wednesday. The TN funeral home is serving the family. From Cedar Rapids Eugene Arthur Nepper passed away peacefully on January 27 at the age of 96 with his son and daughter at his side at the rehabilitation center of Lisbon where he had lived for the past year and a half <clears throat> funeral services will take place at Cedar memorial cemetery on Tuesday January 31 a private burial is at 2.30 p.m., followed by visitation from 3.30 to 4.30 p.m. in the stateroom next to the chapel. Celebration of life is at 3.30 p.m. in the same room. From Cedar Rapids, David A., also known as Shorty Pratt, age 89, passed away on Friday, January 27, at Crest Ridge Care Center in Maquoketa. The family will host a celebration of life at a later date. The Murdoch-Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids assisted the family. And from uh, Chelsea, Magdalena, also known as Lenny, Erna Richard or Reichard, age 83, passed away on Friday, January 27, at Compass Memorial Healthcare in Marengo. Mass of Christian Burial is at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, February 2, at St. Michael's Catholic Church in Belle Plaine. Burial will take place at the National Cemetery in Vining. A visitation is from 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, February 1, at Hrabik Newhouse Funeral Home. There will be a vigil service at 7 p.m. And from Clarence, Shirley K. Hoffner, age 86, passed away on Saturday, January 28th. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, February 1 at St. John's United Church of Christ in Clarence. Burial will follow at the Clarence Cemetery. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, January 31 at the Chapman Funeral Home in Clarence. From Independence, Kendall R. Heppy, age 72, passed away at his home in Independence on Sunday, January 22. A funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. Friday, February 3, at St. Paul's United Methodist Church in Cedar Rapids. And from Solon, Kever E. Swenka, age 78, passed away at the Solon Nursing Care Center on Thursday, January 26. A Funeral Mass will be held at 11 a.m. Tuesday at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Solon. Burial will be in the Sulik Cemetery near Shueyville. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Monday at Papach Kuba Funeral Home East at 1228 2nd Street Southeast in Cedar Rapids and after 10.30 a.m. Tuesday at the church. From Hiawatha, Rollo E. Bredesen, age 85 passed away on January 28 at the Hiawatha Care Center four days prior to his 58th wedding anniversary. No services at this time. And in other death notices from Adalissa, Donna J. Irvin, age 70, died Wednesday, January 25. The Henderson-Barker Funeral Home in West Liberty is assisting the family. From Cedar Rapids, James R. Hanson, age 91, died Saturday, January 28. The Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion is assisting the family. From Cedar Rapids, Francis C. Wolfe, age 81, died Saturday, January 28. The Murdoch-Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids is assisting the family. From Keystone, Scott A. Shalau, age 53, died Saturday, January 28. The Phillips Funeral Home in Keystone is assisting the family. And from Sigourney, Cloyce Talley, age 100, died Sunday, January 29. The Powell Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Sigourney is assisting the family. From today's sports page, an article uh, uh, article about Iowa basketball entitled Setting the Pace, a story by Mike Loss of the Gazette staff. It's fair to say the Iowa men's basketball team imposed its will on Rutgers this season. The Scarlet Knights entered entered Sunday's game at Iowa, fourth in the nation in scoring defense, at 57 points per game. The most they had allowed was on January 8 in the Hawkeyes' 76-65 win. The rematch at Carver-Hawkeye Arena was another 11-point Iowa victory, this time by 93-82. We shot 50% for the game, Rutgers coach Steve Pequiel said. You just can't get into a you-score-they-score kind of game with Iowa. Holding them 10 points under that average, that's what our goal was. Obviously, when you turn the ball over the way we did 18 times, that's not going to help your mission. The Hawkeyes were 12-of-24 from three-point distance, and that sure helps, especially compared to their 3-of-17 in a 63-to-61 loss at Michigan State three days earlier. They also were twenty nine of thirty-four from the foul line to the Scarlet Knights ten of fourteen, forcing twenty five fouls while committing just fourteen. Thus, Iowa improved to five and five in the Big Ten and thirteen and eight overall and began its three game stretch of home games this week the way it wanted. Rutgers is six and four and fourteen and seven. The Hawkeyes fell behind six to nothing and didn't score until the game was nearly four points four minutes old. They progressively got things rolling. An 11 to 2 run to end the first half gave them a 45 to 34 lead. Rutgers had a 9 to nothing run to cut Iowa's lead to 68 to 67 with 8 minutes and 5 seconds left. But the Hawkeyes peeled off eight straight points of their own and and brought the win home before a crowd of about 13,907. Those fans had a loud ovation for someone who hadn't scored a point in four weeks. Junior forward Patrick McCaffrey returned to action after sitting out the previous six games to deal with anxiety. McCaffrey represented his team's performance, making all three of his three-point tries and getting two assists, a block, and a steal, in 13 minutes. Getting the love from Hawkeye fans made me feel really great, he said. His brother, senior Connor McCaffrey, assisted on all three of his, of those three-point t- tries. He had 11 points of his own and three other assists. Good statistics abounded for Iowa. Chris Murray had 24 points and blocked three shots. Peyton Sanford m- matched his career-high eight b- rebounds. Tony Perkins had 11 points and 7 rebounds. Josh Dix dropped in 8 points in 10 minutes. Junior guard Aaron Eulis scored 16 points, giving him 33 in the last two games after the two highest scoring games of his career. It's great to see him play well, Murray said, because we knew it was within him. Making threes was where this game was won. Rutgers had 7 more baskets than Iowa, but the Hawkeyes had that dozen three-pointers to the Scarlet Knights' six. Seven different Iowa players made threes in the first half alone. It happens pretty simply, Iowa coach Fran McCaffrey said. They're comfortable taking them. If they're not, you're not going to take them, and you're not going to make them. Regardless of what might have happened in the last game or two games ago, if you had a poor shooting night, which we did in the last game, I never said a word to any of those guys. We took 17 threes in the Michigan State game. I'd have been fine with us taking 27 or 35. If you're open, shoot the ball. Iowa hosts the Big Ten's second-place team in Northwestern on Tuesday at 8 p.m. Dear Abby's column today is entitled, Southern Girl Isn't Interested in Houses in the North. Dear Abby, I'm a 32-year-old mom of four, 11-month-old twins, a four-year-old, and a six-year-old. I've been married for six years. I'm a southern girl, but my husband is an immigrant. When he emigrated, he settled in the north. I've always told him I don't like the north. I want to move somewhere down south, or at least the middle of the country. We are in the process of house hunting, and he keeps showing me homes in the north, I understand that he loves our stability here and the friends we've made over the years, but we have so much flexibility with our jobs that we can move to someplace we both love. Recently, he said, I could go and live in the South if I want to alone. So now I'm wondering, should I break up our family and take him at his word or keep talking to him about it until I get his okay? And that's from Negative in the North, on the North. And Abby responds, Base the decision about where to live less on geography and more on where your children can get the best education and where the cost of living is more affordable. That your husband has informed you four kids later that he has no intention of compromising is regrettable. Because you feel so strongly about returning to your roots, you may be able to do it once the children are grown. I do not think it's worth breaking up a marriage over, unless this is your husband's way of addressing every disagreement. Turning to today's community page, an article by Trish Mahaffey of the Gazette staff entitled, ISU to Celebrate George Washington Carver Day. Iowa State University will celebrate George Washington Carver Day on February 1, with a program highlighting the life and legacy of the first black student and faculty member before he left Iowa to pursue his career at Tuskegee Institute, now the University of Alabama. The program, which is free and open to the public at the Great Hall of the Memorial Union, will feature speakers from three states, student readings, and Carver-inspired food. A pre-program reception will start at 5 p.m., and the program will follow at 5.30 p.m. This event also will be live-streamed, free posters and buttons make marking the inaugural Carver Day in Iowa, will be given away at the event. Last June, Governor Kim Reynolds approved Senate File 2380, which designates February 1 each year as George Washington Carver Day. Carver is only the third person to be recognized by the state with a day of recognition. The others are Herbert Hoover and Norman Borlaug. Carver was the university's first black student to receive a bachelor's and master's degree and then become the first black faculty member. Carver, an agricultural scientist and inventor, was born into slavery in Missouri in about 1864. His actual birth date is unknown, but historians believe it's January or June, according to the History.com website. He introduced improved farming systems and developed hundreds of food products from plants such as peanuts, sweet potatoes, and others native to the southern United States. Carver left Iowa for the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, where he spent the rest of his life applying his innovative genius to agriculture, according to an ISU news release. A kind and patient teacher Carver showed farmers how alternative crops and practices could benefit their bottom line and sustain their land. He took practical knowledge gained from science and delivered it to those working in the fields and rural areas. Carver died in 1943. He received many honors during his life and after his death, including election to the National Inventors Hall of Fame and the Hall of Fame for Great Americans, and an honorary degree of Doctors of Humane Letters from Iowa State. During the February 1 program, Dwayne Goldman, U.S. Department of Agriculture, Senior Advisor for Racial Justice and Equity, will deliver the keynote address. Goldman earned his Ph.D. in agronomy at Iowa State and was the 2020 recipient of the George Washington Carver Distinguished Service Award from Iowa State's College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. The program also will feature reflections on Carver's life and legacy from Wendy Winterstein, President of the Iowa State University, Ambassador Kenneth Quinn, President Emeritus of the World Food Prize Foundation, Marcia Kelleher, President of Simpson College, Olga Borden-Tiller, Dean, College of Agriculture, Environment and Nutrition Sciences, Tuskegee University, Simon Estes, F. Wendell Miller, Distinguished Artist-in-Residence, the Iowa State's Department of Music and Theater, and Daniel Robeson, Endowed Dean's Chair, College of Agriculture and Life Sciences at Iowa State, throughout the program. Iowa State students, faculty, and staff will deliver a series of readings from Carver's writings. The pre-program reception at 5 p.m. will feature Refreshments inspired by Carver's work. There also will be a concluding reception at 7 p.m. featuring legacy ice cream produced by the Iowa State Creamery. The peanut butter and butterscotch ice cream with chocolate covered rice crisps was created by a team of food science students to honor two outstanding Iowa State alumni George Washington Carver, who performed extensive research on peanut products and Mildred Day, who developed Rice Crispy Treats. And we have an Eastern Iowa Brief today from Toddville, entitled Lynn County Conservation, Hosting an Adventure Day on February 4. Lynn County Conservation will host Adventure Day, where presenters share tales of their outdoor adventures from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Saturday at the Up Hill Learning Center. People can pop in at any time or bring a sack lunch and stay for the day. It's an opportunity to break up winter and cabin fever by hearing of some adventures firsthand by outdoor enthusiasts, said Ryan Schlater, Community Outreach Specialist for Lynn County Conservation. Registration is not required. The WikiUphill Learning Center is at 10260 Morris Hills Road. The sessions include, at 11 a.m. to noon, Arika Billerbeck on her book, Wildland Sentinel. A Department of Natural Resources Conservation Officer, Billerbeck will share photos and stories from her experience as a female in a male-dominated field. And from noon to 1 p.m., WikiUp Uphill Learning Center Manager, Kent Rector, will talk his South San Juan Wilderness Trek from 1 to 1.45 p.m., keynote speaker Dave Hillman will take participants along his recent Missouri River Source to Sea Paddle. The journey took 3,700 miles through 13 states and 123 days. The adventure provided him with a great number of stories and photos to share. Lynn County Conservation Naturalist Chuck Ungs will provide color commentary and wildlife identification. From 1 to 2 there's a social break and popcorn. From 2 to 2 45 p.m. Hillman will continue his amazing Missouri River adventure. And from 3 to 4 p.m. Lynn County Conservation's project planner Ted Dosher will talk about his Wisconsin bikepacking adventure and the gear you may take on a similar jaunt. And our pet of the week is Brana. Brana is an adult female tabby cat available for adoption through the Cedar Rapids Animal Care and Control. Brana loves receiving chin and neck scratches and will gladly return your affection once she has settled in and warmed up to you. Call 319-286-5993 for more information. And we have several things to do today. The first is a health and fitness activity called Jerry Fit. Jerry Fit classes improve strength, balance, and arthritic conditions for people uh, 60 and older. Additional benefits included, include increasing flexibility, balance, and mobility, as well as helping prevent osteoporosis. Stop in or call 319 848 7616 to register. It's from 8 to 9 a.m. at the Ely Public Library at 1595 Dow Street in Ely. The cost is free. We have a family-friendly activity called Playtime at the Shell. The Shell is a play space geared toward younger children, but options for all ages. There's more than 25,000 square feet to run, jump, and play your way to a good nap. It's from 9.30 to 12.30 p.m. at Game On Sportsplex at 4625 Tower Terrace Road in Cedar Rapids. The cost is $10. A community activity entitled Bridge to Opportunities for Older Adults. Forgetting names or appointments, getting lost driving, or having a hard time with words. Is it part of normal aging or signs of dementia? Empower yourself. Learn more about brain health from Chris Sargent with Mercy Center for Memory Health. Goes from 1 to 3:30 p.m. at the Life Enrichment Center at 2100 First Avenue Northeast in Cedar Rapids. Cost is free, and a family-friendly activity entitled Spark, Middle and High School Open Studio. Students can paint, sculpt, draw, and so much more in the art studio. They can also jam with friends in the music studios. Instructors will be on hand to help with projects, supplies, and musical instruments and equipment. It's from 3 to 5 p.m. at the Eastern Iowa Arts Academy Music and Arts Studio at 1847 E Avenue Northeast in Cedar Rapids. The cost is free, but registration is required. And a literary activity entitled Grant Wood Country Forum. This online series is open for anyone interested in learning through creative writing to the enduring legacy of Grant Wood, his art, and his many artistic associations, as well as the land, history, and culture of Iowa across time. Register for the Zoom link. It goes from 6.30 to 8.00 p.m. It's online with Cedar Rapids Public Library at www. CRlibrary.org. The cost is free. And that does it for today's reading of the paper uh, the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today Monday, January 30. I'm your reader, Ken Lauder. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website at iowaradioreading.org at any time. And thanks for listening.